Well, I'd invite you to uh, turn to our scripture passage today. We're looking in Luke chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 1 and going to verse 24, Luke 10, 1 to 24. starting verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted into the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects me, whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning through your Spirit, Uh, Lord, your spirit knows the hearts of every single person here. You read our hearts like a book. You know our thoughts and even our secret thoughts. 
And Lord, we pray now that that Spirit who knows our hearts would speak your truth into the hearts of all of us to show us Christ and to press the supremacy and beauty and glory of Christ on every single one of us who's here today. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, uh, for those of you who are parents, you'll never forget that first moment when you see your child ride his or her bike for the first time without help. It is seared into your memory. Teaching your kids to ride a bike is one of the delights of parenting. Uh, Mostly, you learn a lot about your kid's personality and your personality during the process as well, both the good things and the bad things and how you both rub each other the wrong way sometimes. But besides all of that, and after all the tears and all the fights and all the stomping off and storming off and saying, I'm never going to do this again, eventually they learn to ride their bike. And that moment when you let go and they start pedaling on their own and they realize it, you are filled with delight. And they're filled with delight too, often too much delight because they get so excited they forget what they're doing and then shortly crash or you know, run into a bush or something like that. For each one of my kids, I can remember that moment when they finally got it. Now, they still have a lot of learning to do after they learn to ride and balance on the bike, like how to steer, how to use the brakes, and a lot of other things. But after that first ride, no parent comes up to their kid and says, you know what, good job, you learned to balance, but I was kind of disappointed that you also didn't steer better. I mean, you're going like this, and you need to be better at using your brakes and learning how to turn. No, you don't care about any of that. You're delighted that you saw them learn to ride a bike. It's one of the top moments as a parent. And we're in a series through the book of Luke called The King Has Come, because one of the main themes of the book of Luke is that the king of creation has made his appearance in the world to announce that his kingdom has come. And he's calling people to help with spreading and announcing that kingdom. He's enlisting people into his service. And one of the key things I want us to see in this passage is that Jesus delights when he sees people serving his kingdom. Did you notice that in verse 21? When the people come back, what does it say? Jesus is full of joy as he hears from all these people. He's like a father who sees his son or daughter riding their bike for the first time. And he's so excited about it. And I think that contrasts with often how we feel about Jesus' attitude towards us. We often feel inadequate in our own life, in our faith, in our work to try to honor God. We see our failures. We see the ways in which we could have done better. We see the things that we didn't do. And yet what we see here is Jesus delights in us when we go out to serve him. Jesus delights in seeing people do ministry. That's what I want us to remember, what you want you to remember. Jesus delights when he sees you in ministry. And we're going to look at this three ways. First, that call of ministry. And then second, the warning of judgment. And then third, the care of Jesus. So first, the call of ministry. If you remember from last week, Jesus is beginning his journey down to Jerusalem. And that was a three to four day journey. But Jesus is not taking the most direct route. He, he we learn, is going to take several months to travel and visit all these towns, many of them that he hasn't been able to go to before. And he appoints 72 disciples to go to these various towns ahead of him. 
And one of the things I hadn't noticed before in this passage was that Jesus planned to then go to these places after these disciples. I'd often seen this passage simply as one about how Jesus involved others in the ministry and is multiplying his ministry. But that's not quite true because Jesus is sending these people out, but he still intends to go to all these places. And yet at the same time, Jesus also says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the field. This is a very well-known passage, one that is often used here in Utah, because we live in a place where there are so few people that have heard the true gospel message. And we've seen here at the church, even this morning and, and coming up and, and throughout the years here, there is a plentiful harvest of people that are coming to know Christ. We live on a missions field. There's need for more of us to be willing to speak about the forgiveness and grace of Christ. And so we have two things here in our passage. Jesus planned to go to these towns, and yet he's also saying the workers are few. We need more people to go out. And I think what this shows here is that the worker's job is never to replace Jesus, but to simply prepare the way for Jesus. These workers, these disciples are playing a supporting role in the work that Jesus is going to do. The workers are simply preparing the ground for Jesus to come and then do his work. And I think this is an important point for us today. As I said, we live in a place where there is a plentiful harvest. And yet you can often feel ill-equipped for helping others know Jesus. You can think of all the questions that someone might ask you and think, well, I don't know how I would answer that, so I don't want to bring up the conversation. But what does our passage show? that your job, our job, isn't to replace Jesus for people, but to show them Jesus. And that is something that every single one of us can do. Jesus does the heavy lifting. He'll show up in people's lives. Our job is to just simply show them Jesus, show how Jesus is working, point out the things that are already there. And this fits into what Jesus says in his prayer at the end of our passage. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Who is the one who's responsible for someone coming to know Jesus? Well, it's God, right? He is the one who reveals these things. You can't convince someone to become a Christian. You can't argue them into the faith. You can't have enough good evidence for them to finally believe. No, God has to reveal himself to them. And there's no way that you can do that. And what's beautiful about it is God often reveals himself to the children. Children literally or the childlike. And helping someone come to know Jesus isn't about how much you know, but it's about the God who can open the eyes of the blind and irresistibly draw them to himself. And that should be freeing for you. Because it means in those relationships with people that you love, with coworkers, with neighbors, with people that you want to come to know Christ, it's not so much about your power or your skill as it is about trusting the one who can open people's eyes and draw them to himself. I mean, another way to think about it is imagine you had a, a large pile of boulders that you wanted to take and get delivered to your house for some landscaping. Right now, now, which would you rather be? the guy 
that can deadlift a thousand pounds, which is pretty cool and pretty impressive, but doesn't have any power equipment, right? And you've got to lug those boulders across town. There's no way you're going to do that. Or would you rather be the guy that's got a front loader and a dump truck? It doesn't matter how strong you are, you aren't going to be able to move all of those boulders across town into your yard on your own. But if you've got a front loader and a dump truck, you might only be able to curl 10 pounds at the gym, but you're going to be able to move thousands of pounds of rock because of the equipment. And you see, for someone to come to faith, it always requires a miraculous action. It always requires something way beyond what you can do. And that's why we trust that God will seek and save every one of his people. It doesn't matter how strong we are. And what God does is he's kind of like, you know, the dad when I rented some small power equipment to drill a bunch of holes in our yard when we we're building the fence, right? And I let every one of my kids play on the, the little digger thing, right? And, and, and they delighted and be able to push a little lever, right? And, and, and dig, drill down into the ground. And it wasn't their power. They delighted in having that power at their fingertips. And God delights in letting us harness and be active in his power to do miraculous works in people's lives. So what's holding us back from sharing about Christ with others? What's holding us back from sharing the beauty of Christ in other people's lives? Well, let's move to the next point. There's a, there's a lot in this passage. I'm going to skip big chunks of it. So second, a warning of judgment. Jesus gives instructions for what to do if that town isn't welcoming. Verse 10, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. And then Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, it's, remember to, it's helpful to remember what we looked at last week, where in chapter 9, Jesus wasn't welcomed in a town, and what happened? James and John, two of those disciples, asked Jesus, hey, should we cast down fire on them? And remember what did Jesus do? He didn't say, oh, you know, good idea, but not now. No, he rebuked his disciples for wanting to bring judgment on that town. And what we saw was that Jesus cares a lot about how we treat those who mistreat us. That we're called to bring grace and not judgment. But then we see here that there is a judgment that is coming. We can think of it this way, that time from Jesus' birth until the time that Jesus returns is a period of grace where he is sending his disciples and us and all people out into the world to plead with people, tell them the kingdom of God is near. Be reconciled with God before it's too late. And then Jesus starts giving these woes in our passage to various cities throughout the region. And he says some pretty weighty things. It's almost like he takes the, the top five worst offenders in the Old Testament, Sodom, Tyre, Sidon, and so on. And he says, you thought their judgment was bad. Just wait till you see what's going to happen to you. You're going to wish that you'd suffered Sodom's fate. Now, this is a side of Jesus we don't see as much, and yet we should also recognize that Jesus talked about judgment and hell more than anybody else in the New Testament. It's something that maybe makes us feel uncomfortable, probably rightly so, and yet we also have to make sure we're not cutting off a large part of Jesus because it makes us uncomfortable. We need to follow the real Jesus, the whole Jesus, 
not just the parts that we agree with, because if you only follow the parts of a Jesus you agree with, you're just really following an idealized version of yourself. And that Jesus can never transform your life. To have your life transformed, you need someone that will actually confront you and show you things that you don't like for the purpose of having your life made into something much better. And it seems here that Jesus is making some differentiation in how God judges. That for Tyre and Sidon, it will be more bearable than for these cities that reject Jesus. It seems like we can say there's an aspect in God's judgment And honestly, I don't understand how all this works, but that the judgment that people face will be in some ways tied to what they know. And the worst thing then is to have heard about Jesus and reject him, to have seen his miraculous signs, to hear about God's radical grace for sinners, his love for enemies, and then to say, no thanks, I don't want that. This means that for us, it is actually more dangerous to come to church because the worst thing is to be involved in a church and never truly give your life to Christ. Never come in repentance and faith in Jesus. It's actually very easy for all kinds of people to come to church for the wrong reasons, right? You have friendships. It gives you a social club. It gives you something for your kids to do. It gives you ways to serve. It gives you activities to do. It makes you feel moral. It makes you feel like you're learning good values. But all those things will only serve to your judgment if in the end you never bow your knee to Christ and say, Jesus is Lord of my life. And it means that he needs to be changing your life. That there's no such thing truly as a cultural Christian, that you aren't actually Christian. So are you trusting in Jesus? And one of the reasons we need to trust in God's judgment is because if we get rid of God's judgment, well, there's still all kinds of horrible things that happen in the world. And then you either just despair because, right, injustice rules, or you take judgment into your own hands because, well, no one else sees it, so I got to fix it. And that is one of the the key issues in our world and in our country today. For years, we've kind of subtly gotten rid of God's judgment and and the desire to have a more loving-looking God. And yet, what happens? People will only become more judgmental because there's still as much issue and suffering and injustice in the world. And so instead of trusting a God to make all things right, people pick up stones on their own to try to make things right and to fight. And that never goes well. It's why you have cycles of violence. It's why so often genocides and and decades of war occur in countries around the world because people start off with good intentions. We're just trying to seek justice. And yet, as Miroslav Volf writes, the human ability to agree on justice will never catch up to the human propensity to do injustice. And we're just chasing and going further and further down into the darkness. The only way that you can actually forgive and treat with kindness and grace those who mistreat you, those who have been unjust to you, is if 
you believe that there is a God who is coming to judge and make all things right. Again, Wolf writes, Without entrusting yourself to the God who judges justly, it will hardly be possible to follow the crucified Messiah who refused to retaliate when abused. The certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. There's a lot in what he's saying, but it's basically this. The only way that you can follow a Jesus who cried out at the end of his life when unjustly abused, Father, forgive them, in the middle of your abuse, in the middle of those who have sinned against you, is to trust that one day God will call them to account and make all things right. And if you don't believe in a God that does that, you're going to be looking to try to take things into your own hands, and it never ends well. God is just. He sees everything that has gone on. He sees what goes on behind the closed doors, in private, things no one else sees. He's not subject to bribes. He's not has his you know, hands tied by a legal system that seems to sometimes favor injustice. He will make everything perfectly right. Not a single injustice will be left untouched. And we don't want to take God's judgment lightly, but we also can see that there's a comfort in us in it, that the only way that we can live as Christians today and forgive those who mistreat us is when we trust that there's a God who will make all those things right. And this brings us to the third point, the care of Jesus. So the 72 return, and they have all these amazing stories of what's happened. And Jesus says, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Now, we're not sure exactly when this occurred, but one possibility is when Jesus was tempted back in Luke 4, near the beginning of his ministry. You remember Satan showed up and tempts Jesus three times? And Jesus was the first human in all of human history to be able to stand up to a temptation from Satan and walk away victorious instead of walking away as the one who was overcome. And in that moment, it was like the tide had shifted and Satan's power was broken and his demise was inevitable. And this is why it matters for us. Because this kind of goes against our perhaps modern sensibilities, but we do live in a world that is full of spiritual powers. There is evil at work, and it's seeking to wreak havoc and bring chaos against all that is good. And as Paul says, though, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. So that exists out there, and yet at the same time, we need to recognize that Satan's power has been broken. Jesus is more powerful. So that you don't need to go through life in fear of evil, in fear of doing the wrong thing and an evil spirit overtaking you, in fear of evil having more power than Jesus in your life. Though there are evil spirits that seek to do harm, if you're in Christ, they are impotent against anything 
against you because Christ is more powerful. As Jesus says in John chapter 10, no one can snatch my people, us, away from me. For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. This means whatever darkness you face, your life is secure in Jesus. Jesus is the safest place to be. And then Jesus says how he's given them authority to trample on snakes and that nothing will harm them. Now, that's a pretty big promise, right? Nothing is going to harm you. But then we also see that Jesus sometimes tells his disciples, like in Matthew 24, 9, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations. So what does it mean to follow Jesus, right? He says to some people, nothing will harm you, and then he tells other people, life's going to get really tough here. And see, I think it would be wrong to think that in following Jesus, if you just have enough faith, that you too can trample on strongmen and snakes, Sometimes you will suffer. Instead, a better interpretation of what Jesus is saying here is that wherever you are, you will always be in God's particular care. That you, nothing will happen in your life that is outside of God's control. And sometimes that means you can walk into incredibly dangerous situations and everything will be fine. And sometimes it means you're going to suffer greatly for following Jesus. But what that doesn't mean is that any of that is random. What that doesn't mean is that any of that is because you somehow stepped outside of God's bubble of control. And this should be an incredible comfort that none of you can step outside of God's perfect plan. And that means, in one sense, for Christians, no situation is more dangerous than another situation, right? Yes, on a human level, certain things are more dangerous. But from God's perspective, if he wants you to be able to walk into a fiery furnace and not have a single hair be singed, then that's what's going to happen. And if he wants you, if his plan is for you to, you know, leave this life dying, choking on a a wet noodle, that's what's going to happen, He is in perfect control of everything. Now, it's easy to misunderstand this idea. It doesn't mean that you just walk through life recklessly because it might be God's plan for you to suffer the consequences of living recklessly. But it means the calculus for us and what we should do is not how dangerous something looks, but whether or not this is what God is calling you to do that the safest place to be is following God's will. And it doesn't matter how dangerous it looks to the outside world. And even if things are falling apart in your life and the world is in chaos, God is in complete control of even the chaos. Now, God's plan doesn't keep us from suffering, but it does mean that your suffering is never meaningless. The hard things in your life right now are not purposeless or random. Yes, we rarely rarely understand the why behind so much of this. But you can be confident that your life is not like a little uh, pinball that is bouncing back and forth randomly, just getting hit by all kinds of things, and you just feel like you're getting beat up every single day. 
But as Paul writes in Romans 8, 28, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So whether your life falls apart over a weekend or you're suffering from chronic pain for decades, none of that is wasted when you're following God. And he will redeem all those things into a beautiful tapestry of his providence in your life. So keep on seeking to do the right thing. Keep showing up. Keep following God and trusting that he is leading you like a good shepherd to green pastures, and he will fill your cup with joy and gladness. But we often have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And then Jesus adds, However, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's such a key reminder because it is so easy to fall in love with the glorious things about ministry, the amazing things that God does more than simply loving the fact that you're a child of God. Then we get to verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, This is the verse that just jumped out at me because nowhere else in all of the Gospels is it say that Jesus is full of joy. This is the only place. Now, I doubt it's because Jesus was kind of a dour guy. He was frowning most of the time. But but something about this moment caught people's eye that Jesus is full of joy. It's that face you have when you first see your son or daughter riding their bike or doing that thing they've been working so hard for. And what brings Jesus this joy? It's seeing his people return from doing ministry. He sees these people engaged in in that work of telling others about the grace of Jesus, how God's kingdom is coming. And, And sure, there's ways they could have done it better. Sure, they weren't perfect. But he delights in seeing that. And Jesus called 72 people to go out for this work. But he didn't call everybody. And our call is kind of different depending on on who we are. But that call is going to look unique for each of us. Not all of us are necessarily called to go out from city to city to proclaim his kingdom. But every single one of you is called to serve God in your life in some way. Some of you here are being called to serve as leaders in the church. Maybe some of you are called to go into full-time ministry. Maybe some of you are called to serve as missionaries in other places. But every single one of us is called to use the gifts that God has given us to serve others. So what's holding you back from serving God with your life? Often it's fear. I don't know enough. I don't know if I'll do a good job. I'm afraid of screwing something up. I don't know if I have enough time. I don't have enough knowledge or resources. But see, that's why I don't miss this verse. Jesus delighted in just seeing the people going out and serving. And he's watching you like a a good father who delights in seeing you learn how to ride your bike. Sure, there's a lot of ways you could improve. But the key thing is you tried. And God was smiling for every second of it. God delights in watching you live this often stumbling life 
but doing it for his glory. So how are you serving him? It can be in little things, practical things. We always need more help with serving here at the church, with stepping stones or welcome team or helping with sound or AV stuff. But it's also about helping others come to know Christ. And if you were here uh, over Christmas, we handed out a bunch of those bookmarks with the names of five people on it, or blanks for five people, and you could fill those out and pray for them throughout the year. Well, what's keeping you from talking to those people about Jesus? What's keeping you from talking to a coworker or a friend about Jesus? You may feel awkward. You might trip all over your words. But trust that God is just smiling and watching you try and believe that he's the one that does the heavy lifting in people's lives. So let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would Help us to trust more in you, to not live kind of in fearful sense of judgment, but in seeing that you are a good father who delights in watching his people try to serve you. Free us from the burdens that weigh us down. Free us from the self-judgment and the doubts. And help us to live freely knowing that we are always in your care, and that you delight in us a lot more than we realize. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.